0: morning, everybody. It's great to have you here, to see you, to be in person. Um, My uh, name, if you haven't met me before, I'm um, one of the pastors here. My name's Gary. Um, It's great to have you here today. Um, Today, we're looking at sort of this big idea um, that Jesus actually invites us into, and it's this idea that um, we're really made to be people who are um, not resistant to God, but rather that we are people who are repentant to God, and that that invites us onto a whole new kind of relationship with who God is. And so I wanna just give us a little bit of background. You know, we've been in this series looking at all the different parts of this, trying to figure out um, the ins and outs of it. And we've already met, um, you know, we've met Theophilus and we've met Luke, and we've been talking about how it is that, um, that God is coming to actually help um, Theophilus and help Luke as they're understanding who God is. In fact, Luke says this in Luke chapter 1. He says that um, with this in mind, um, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. So one of the things that Luke wants us to understand is that this isn't just sort of folklore, it's, um, it's actually built on a kind of certainty about who it is that God, that God is revealing in Jesus. And so, and actually Theophilus itself, that name actually means God-fearer, which is interesting. So there's a piece of this where Theophilus is joining in with Luke, and we find as we go through the book of Acts that it starts to change a little bit in that it becomes now this... Um, passages that start off with, I was there, turn into, we were there. And so Luke actually joins into um, the, the company of believers and um, begins to walk along with them. And I think that's really important for us to understand. So Jesus is bringing in this long-awaited kingdom, um, but it's going to look a lot different than people may expect. Um, it's still possible to find joy and peace right now in the midst of the kingdom, um, but it's also important to realize um, that in the midst of this kingdom being revealed, that Jesus is there for you. And so today, you know, it's going to be some sort of hard sayings. We're going to look at, you know, what it is that, um, that God's trying to reveal to us. But at the same time, um, it's going to be a time for us to really embrace and understand who God is and also who it is that God understands us to be. There's an old story. I actually picked this up out of um, a book looking at um, the Gospel of Luke about Ludwig van Beethoven that, you know, he would go and he would sort of lollingly sort of play these beautiful, beautiful concerts for um, for people, and, and they would just sort of get caught up in the music and transformed by it and everything else. And then all of a sudden, Beethoven would do something really drastic. He would basically take his arm and he would just go down as hard as he could on the keyboard. And um, part of what he was doing was he was sending out sort of a shock to people reminding them that, that life isn't always just rosy and good and easy, but there's also sort of a difficult part of life as well. And that's one of the things I think that is happening in this passage, is that Jesus is really almost like with Beethoven, sort of, sort of slamming down on the keys and saying, hey, here's something you really need to be attentive of, something that you really need to be aware of, because it's going to change your lives. And, and remember here, that, um, you know, Jesus is addressing several different um, people. He's addressing the religious people, basically the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, he's also addressing the Christians that are there. Um, you know, the, uh, the term that was used was sort of little Christ, and it was really meant to be a put-down, but actually the Christians began to see it as a compliment because we do want to be like Christ. And then also that Jesus was announcing that the kingdom is here right now. It's possible for all of us to enter into that kingdom right now, but it's also a kingdom that's going to come to fulfillment later as we continue to walk with it. So here in Luke 12, um, Jesus becomes pretty crystal clear about what it is that we need to be attentive to in our lives. Um, He doesn't hold back, which always is for our good. Um, because we want to be part of what God's doing and understand how God is moving. And we don't want to just create a God that we're comfortable with, (laughs) but we want to really worship the true God. So um, don't be too surprised. It comes as sort of a warning. Um, It's not um, Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus who's ready for action. He's ready to lay it all out, um, to challenge all of our assumptions, because when he does that, then we start to find out, how he intended life for us to be. So it's not the last or first time that we'll find Jesus' words challenging. I mean, if you think about it, there's some pretty hard sayings of Jesus that are found in the New Testament. One of them comes out of Matthew chapter 16. He says this, he said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? So one of the things that we have to understand is that there's always a kind of price that comes with peace. Uh, Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace, but the Prince of Peace is also one that often brings division so we're going to look at this, look at what it is that, um, that this chapter of Luke describes. And I'm going to start actually read a, a little bit of paragraph um, verses 49 through 53. So listen as I read. Jesus says, I came to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish that it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it's completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family, divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So these uh, verses, they're tough, aren't they? I mean, wh- what does this mean about all this division and how it is that God's gonna actually be at work in the midst of it? And, and what does it mean when Jesus says that he claims to bring fire upon the earth? He's saying really, you know, here's what I've come to do. Um, and, and this image of fire is actually an image of God's judgment. But realize too that this is not the um, consuming fire that dropped on the disciples at Pentecost but rather, it's a purifying fire of the Holy Spirit. His point is this, though. The crisis of judgment is never far away. And it's interesting because his word order is sort of complicated. He says, um, fire I came to cast on the earth. Um, it's really sort of foreshadowed by um, another verse in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus said this, um, I answered them, I will baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Jesus is laying it out here, saying, I have a baptism that I'm supposed to be baptized with. And and in the midst of that, you need to realize that this is going to demand everything of everybody um, so that they can walk with me and understand me. And so even though the kingdom is... Always, sort of recognized and characterized by reconciliation, the, amount, the announcement of the kingdom is always something that that divides. It requires a decision and a commitment, and so this is part of what happens as we come along. I'm going to switch this real quick here, so we can see these as well. So today we're going to look at we're going to look at you know what does it mean to be resistant to the kingdom as opposed to being repentant. We're gonna think about this, that that a decision always, always can cause or lead to a kind of division. And then we're gonna talk about this fire and baptism, and then also think about what it is that Jesus means when he says that he's gonna come to actually settle debts. So it's important for us to realize that part of what Jesus is saying is, this is a new time. Um, These are harder statements, harder sayings. I'm inviting you into this time But he's also saying, let it start right now. So what does he mean by his baptism? Well, part of what he means is that um, it's probably an allusion to his death. It could also sort of refer more generally to the conflict and distress that he'd be immersed in as he approaches Jerusalem. But he's also saying that he's totally governed by this baptism. He talks about feeling distressed about it, um, about feeling under stress by it. And, and as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, I think the stress of all that just continues to mount. Um, even his own family would be pierced by its effects. He's not alone in this. It's something that they're going to experience themselves. Remember the words of Simeon. Again, this is out of Luke. Um, Simeon says this when he sees this baby Jesus brought to the temple. He said, this child is destined to For the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And then he turned to Mary and he said, And a sword will pierce your own soul. So the kingdom of God, when it comes, doesn't bring peace, at least not immediately. Instead, it's going to bring a kind of division and a conflict. And those who commit themselves to Jesus should prepare for the opposition they'll face. Sometimes, even in their own families, the message "peace on earth" is not received without savage con- or sa- excuse me, savage conflict. And though, even though reconciliation is really the work of the Messiah, um, it's going to be marked by tragic divisions. Look at verse fifty-two and fifty-three with me. It's talking about this number of five in the family. They'll be divided, father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's interesting to note that um, the one division that doesn't seem to happen is that there's not a division between the husband and the wife. And I think that that's probably because of Jesus's prohibitions against divorce. But the church needs to realize that they would face separations. Between believing and unbelieving partners. Wherever the word of God um, has been heard, divisions occur among the people who hear it. Peace has a price. It's always more than simply the absence of conflict. It's, It's always calling us to something. And one can only choose the cost for which to fight and the commitments that are worth holding. Earl Ellis said it this way. He said, the call for decision is always a call for division. So realize that that's an important part of what Jesus is saying here. You know, whenever we make that decision to follow, there's a sense of division that comes in as well. So what do we do with all this so far? And I want to, you know, continue to sort of bring us back to some reflections on it because I think it's important for us to, to think about what we do with it. You know, our commitments that we make don't just simply affect a part of our life, they always affect our whole life. Um, When we set out on a direction or a path, um, it either leads us closer to God or sometimes it leads us further away from God. And of course, the key here really is to make Jesus our highest goal, um, to make him our greatest longing, and then to learn to trust God for the rest. And note that, you know, when we make this sort of commitment of faith, one of the things that happens too is that our attitude towards material possessions will change. The relationships and responsibilities that we have taken on actually grow in a greater kind of seriousness. And following Jesus becomes that sort of dividing line for us, you know, where we find that we're called to be more than we're able to be by ourselves. But the good news of this is that the Holy Spirit comes and helps us in the midst of that. So Jesus draws us to make a commitment to him. But in doing that, we find that our relationships with others, even those closest to us, are all affected by that relationship and that commitment. And so as he turns to face Jerusalem, he finds that all of his relationships with others, even those closest to him, will be affected by his commitment and his movement in that direction. Jesus said this, you know, and, and you you got to sort of play it. I think both ways. You, you, know, he said, "I've come to give you life in abundance," but the question is, how does that live out? Um, you know, it means that I, um, we are following Jesus into a whole new way of being. Um, We become a positive influence to those who are around us. We um, learn to let Christ shape our commitments and our values, our priorities, our goals, our behavior. Um, It also forces us to change some of the patterns that we might have in our lives. And, And these certain kinds of changes may precipitate a kind of conflict in the relationships that we're a part of. Jesus himself knew such a crisis, and he understood what it meant and how it was that we were to participate in that as well. And so he continues in verses 54 and 55, um, talking about learning to sort of read the signs of the times. Um, Listen to his words. He said to the crowd, verse 54, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. How, how good are you at telling the weather? You know, isn't that why the weather channel exists? You know, I've got that on my phone. What does it mean when we look and we can see, you know, that it's cloudy outside? Like even today, the first thing we think is it's going to rain. And the point that Jesus is making here is this, that there are some things that we naturally know and understand but we have to become more attentive to the signs that are all around us. The weather in Judea and Samaria, Galilee, was all controlled by the Mediterranean Sea. To the west, the desert, and, the, and the, um, to the south and southwest. And when clouds appeared in the west, it meant that rain was coming. When the blue, wind blew from the south or southwest, they were going to have scorching heat. So Jesus continues to remind us that these things are important. He then goes on to talk about sort of two different clusters of things, sayings that address the crowd. The first cluster is sort of this charge um, for not being as observant to the signs and the coming um, of judgment as they are to the weather. Listen to verse 56. It's a pretty harsh statement. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? You know, it's interesting that this verse um, and this term hypocrite actually means, in it's sort of a stage actor. It was somebody who, who um, in a kind of Greek Roman custom would oftentimes um, imitate something. They'd wear large masks and hide behind their mask, and they'd have sort of a mechanical voice that came out. And it's found only in the synoptic gospels and used always by Jesus. It's used 15 times in Matthew. It's used a couple of times here in Luke, in verse um, chapter 12, verse 56, and then also 13.5. But Matthew continues to remind us Luke continues to remind us that this phrase reminds of God's coming judgment and that we need to be as concerned about hypocrisy of the Pharisees as, as Jesus was in Luke 12, verse 1. So this argument is sort of from the greater or it's, it's from the lesser to the greater. Jesus starts off by saying, you know, if you're paying attention to the weather, even a, a cloud on the horizon or a puff of sky... A wind, then pay even more attention to the seasons. And that word kairos in the Greek means the opportunity. And it has the idea of being a time which is opportune for action. It's a sign that the judgment is at hand, the present time. And so Jesus, his works and his warnings are signs that the kingdom is coming, the end is near. Um, and that it's time now to act. Now, I don't know what your experience has been, but, you know, this whole news about the kingdom coming isn't really a kind of new news to us, is it? I mean, I can still remember 1976, living in Southern California, and um, the Jehovah's Witnesses announced that the kingdom of God was going to come and the world was going to end. And we all started getting sort of prepared for that. And I was working um, actually at a theater in Southern California at that time, 16 years old. I was assistant manager. I was, it was like wonderful. Like I just thought it was the best job ever. And, um, but the fact is, is that no one knows the times or the signs. In fact, Jesus says only the Father knows the times and the seasons. Um, I was working at this theater and we had um, excavated this large um, Property right next to the theater. In fact, they were adding on another thousand-seat theater, and so they had been digging this up, and everything was going on. And one day, um, you know, we were making a lot of fun of the Jehovah's Witnesses because we thought Shh, they don't know what they're talking about. And um, and one day, about a hundred yards of plywood, all of a sudden, got blown over and tossed into this ditch that was there. And and for a moment, I thought, oh man, they were right. Like this is it. It's over, right? And, um, and then all of a sudden, the dust started to clear, and everything started to get back to normal, and all of a sudden, we realized, whoops, that wasn't it, uh, no big deal, and we sort of went on with life. But Jesus says here, be aware of the signs and the times. Watch what's going on. He continues to challenge the crowd to look at these signs, and the second warning comes asking people to make every effort to settle accounts. He moves into a sort of an interesting thing. The, the end of this passage gets, I think, more and more interesting, but also more and more complex. In verse 57 through 59, he says, "'Why don't you judge for yourself what is right? "'As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, "'try hard to be reconciled on the way, "'or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, "'and the judge turn you over to the officer, "'and the officer throw you into prison.' I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. So Jesus says, you know, this is a, starts off sort of neutral. But he says, this is actually a really threatening time. Uh, If you're not careful, you can be dragged before the judge, thrown into prison. And the implication is that this is more serious than you even realize. And the point is that we should recognize the urgency of the moment make every effort to settle with our accuser. Because of exorbitant interest rates, um, defaults on loans were common. And once you were part of the legal system, once people had started to collect on you, um, the debtor really had little chance of escape. In fact, it's interesting because this is actually, in the Greek, the smallest um, copper coin. It's 1 128th of a denarius. It was a coin that was used in Palestine in the first century. But if you couldn't pay that fine, then the thing that happened is you got thrown in jail. And once you're in jail, how in the world do you pay your fine at that point? You can't. In fact, the jail system was pretty brutal. Um, They oftentimes would beat up prisoners and do things to them to so that somebody else would take some pity on them and actually start to bring them food and take care of them because the jailers really didn't want to have anything to do with the prisoners themselves. So the only smart thing to do was to actually settle you with your accuser before the matter came to court. And here's some things I think are important for us to understand. Why is it that Jesus is talking about that? He's talking about that because there's often a contrast between what we devote our attention to, and also what we tend to sort of casually neglect in our lives. So here's another couple of reflection questions that I think are part of this. What claims your closest attention? What's the thing that really gets your attention? And then the second one is, what do you turn a blind eye to? What are the areas that um, you do tend to neglect? And then in neglecting them, uh, perhaps you're going to get in trouble with that as well. What happens when you reach a crisis proportion in your marriage, for example? Or maybe you get to a point where you're so concentrated on not neglecting certain things that you are also then neglecting the well-being of your children or your parents. What about your own health? How are you mindful of that? what happens when you sort of misplace the focus of your attention? Jesus challenges us to con- examine the inconsistency between our own attention and our own neglect. And furthermore, he calls us even deeper into this. He says, you know, where does our devotion come to the teachings of Jesus himself? How is it that we understand who it is that God's calling us to be. What does this whole idea of repentance mean to us? How do we become a part of that and understand that? Are, are we mindful of what it is that God actually desires for us? And can we realize, too, that Jesus himself actually knows better than we do about things? Um, that God actually knows what's better for our lives even more than we do? And so we're invited to understand that God is walking with us, God is with us, guiding us, that God gives us an opportunity to be able to find that place where we can then understand God's love and God's grace. So we're invited to repent or perish, and just when you think um, it couldn't get any stranger, we come to Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. Listen as I read this to you. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. So how do we understand all of this? I mean, these are pretty complex um, passages, and we're going to actually look a little bit at something that Josephus, who was a first century theologian, said about this. But but Jesus actually sort of challenges this popular notion And that is that sin is always the cause of all of our problems. It goes like this. It goes, if God is responsible for everything that happens, and if God is a just God, then calamities that happen to us must be the result of human sinfulness. But I'm not sure that that's true. Listen to Josephus' writing on this. He he does talk about Pilate killing troops um, of Samaritans that were climbing the mountain, that that Pilate also introduced Roman effigies into Jerusalem. Pilate seized the treasury funds. Um, But did they see Jesus' exhortation here as sort of a time for reconciliation or rather as a political statement? Instead, Jesus seizes a teachable moment. The point is this. The coming judgment is inescapable. Uh, Were they worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, they were not. But Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll all perish just as they did. So repentance is a big thing for Jesus. In fact, John 9 actually sort of summarizes this a little bit. Um, It says that Jesus was going along. He saw a man born blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, and here's here's sort of the age-old question, right? Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's always the question that gets asked. And Jesus said this. He said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus sort of lets us see the fallacy of our reasoning, um, while at the same time driving home the point that life itself is uncertain, Um, Death is unavoidable, and that judgment is inevitable. Were they any worse sinners than all the others? No, um, they were not. And actually, this kind of theology is always better in theory than it is at actually dealing with the real tragedies that we face in life. It's a shocking image, but the need for repentance is urgent. And it strikes at a pretty vulnerable point for all of us. Uh, Try as we might to protect ourselves or those we love from every single danger, disease, traffic accident, crime, mental or emotional disorder, random act of violence. But Jesus says that these calamities are not God's doing. But the point is that we should live each day in such a way that we have no fear of giving an account for how it is that we use God's gift. Jesus knows this. He says, you know, He forces choices. He doesn't bring peace. He brings division. He brings rejection. He'll suffer because it's introduced by his presence. Families will be decided. Some will accept him. Others will reject him. But he's trying to really shock us, I think, into a time of reflection by saying, how can you simply miss all that's going on around you right now? How can you miss what is actually happening in my ministry? How can you miss so that I can understand and you can understand God's love and care for you right now? So how would you assess your condition right now? Where do you find yourself? God is always just and fair. Death exists in a fallen world, and nothing tends to expose our mortality more than when death comes suddenly, when it cuts short a life, Um, And the choice is always ours, that we can either turn and face God, or we can turn and blame God. So it brings us back to this theme of repentance. What does it mean to repent, and how do we understand God's grace and love for us So I'm going to actually invite you, if you're open, to do something with me. I'm going to invite you to stand up, if you don't mind. Like, you've been sitting a long time right now. So if you're open to that, stand up for a second. Thanks. you. are such a good, you're nice people, I'll tell you. So, and what I want you to do is I want you to sort of, I'm going to turn so I'm like you. Like, hold up your right hand. Okay. Okay, so now with your right hand, turn and face this wall over here. So when Jesus calls us to repent, part of what he's saying is that that we turn and we face a certain way. If you imagine this wall being, you know, that Jesus himself is saying to us, um, you know, look at me, come to me, understand who I am. Now turn for a second and turn all the way around, left hand up, go the other way, this way, turn to this wall. You see, to repent is to turn 180 degrees and to face the other direction. All right, you can sit down. That was good, good job, nice job. Thank you very much. You helped me with my, um, <laughs> my, my problem, so anyway. Um, so what is it that we need to do? Well, we need to understand that, um, that God invites us into a new way of being. To repent is really to change our direction And Jesus has this idea that we need to turn to face God more, to hear God's message, to to be rightly related to God. And with repentance comes not only a change of mind, but also a change of direction. And since direction and orientation is directed to faith in God, that is why the Old Testament talks about this as a kind of turning. So how do we understand this and live into it? You know, reading the signs and times of today might be a little bit different. The evidence of God's work through Christ is left in the testimony of Scripture, the evidence of transformed lives and the ministry of the church at large. And the church, by its very existence, emerging from nothing and growing through the last 20 centuries, is really a testimony of God's work and love. In all the corners of the earth, Jesus is active, sometimes in places Far distance from that of the original new community. And the gateway to the church is still the same as it was even back then. It's that God is inviting us to let go of our sin and to accept God's offer of free grace for us. You know, either Jesus does this in our place by his grace and sacrifice on the cross. Or this passage seems to say that we will pay for every last cent before God. That it results in a debt that we can never actually pay. Which is exactly why grace is so important. When I realize that I need a Savior, then I realize that I can't save myself. When I try to save myself, it puts me on an endless treadmill of trying to please God. Um, Instead of realizing that God is actually already pleased with me. And that God wants a relationship with me. And the starting point of turning is to turn and embrace God's love for us by repenting of our sin and accepting God's grace. And that's why Jesus stresses so strongly the need for repentance in chapter 13. Since we're all sinners, we need to turn to God for forgiveness, and the call of Jesus to repent is timeless. Whether the call is issued to a covenant nation like Israel, or to individuals like us who need to enter into a relationship of grace and forgiveness. But you have to understand, too, that it's in light of this, oftentimes our, um, our portrayal of Jesus, our contemporary portrayal of Jesus is actually pretty skewed. One of the things that our culture tends to see is, sees Jesus as a man who didn't engage in confrontation or in judgment um, he came as the ultimate peacemaker, establishing peace at any cost, never challenged anyone other than to call for love and tolerance. Um, as a teacher of wisdom and a teller of parables, he didn't force people into hard choices. This is what some of the critics say. Or if he had nothing to do, or if he had, it had nothing to do with his own personal need for Israel to reform. Scott McKnight sort of piggybacking on this, um, writes some good stuff about how it is that Jesus oftentimes is seen as the sage, the religious genius, the social revolutionary. He says, they're all inadequate portraits of the one who comes to bring us to God. Here's what he writes. He says, my fundamental disagreement with each of these ideas of Jesus is that this Jesus would never have been crucified. He never would have drawn the fire that he did. He would never have commanded the following that he did. He never would have created a movement that still shakes the world. Jesus, who went around saying wise and witty things, would not have been threatening enough to have been crucified during Passover when he was surrounded by hundreds of people who liked him. A Jesus who was a religious genius, who helped people in their relationship with God, was kind, compassionate, and gentle, Would not have been crucified either. Jesus understood that he was a figure who would bring division. He was clear about how life was supposed to be lived, and he was clear about how it was that he fit into God's plan. Simply put, for all of us to realize, Jesus is the way into a relationship with God. And Jesus' ministry continues to confront us, not harshly, but directly by calling all of us to account before God. His call is not to bring peace at any price, but rather to sort through humanity in order to draw some to him, while others will also turn away. We make the great mistake if we try to manipulate the biblical Jesus into a Christ that fits our image of what we'd like God to be like. And so the challenge comes we must repent and turn, or we will too perish. So what does it mean to repent? Well, it's a reorientation to a new life. To repent is not merely to regret things that we've done or apologize to them or to recognize the wrong that's been committed, but rather to repent is to agree that a change of direction is required and then to respond accordingly. Repenting means understanding that life lived outside of God in Christ is not life as God meant it to be. So today, as we're um, coming to the end of this sermon, I'm going to start to invite the um, band to come back out at this point. I also want to give you an opportunity to, um, to acknowledge God's love and an opportunity to repent and realize that God is with you Um, It's a chance to turn and face Jesus, to let him lead you, to stop going your own way, to say, Lord, show me the way you would like to go. Repentance itself is the starting point of our new life in Christ. It includes an admission and admission, um, and need for God to take over and work in us and through us. And it's never too late, because the fact of the matter is, God is always gracious God always accepts us and loves us, walks with us, regardless of our past. So with that said, um, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, um, that even in the midst of these tough words, that you are a God who brings truth and love. And we desire that more um, each day as we continue to live out this life that you've called us to. God, I pray today that, um, that your spirit would just move among us and be with us. Help us to understand who you're calling us to be and how it is that you, along with that call, um, comes the power to follow. Thank you, God, for being here. Thank you for your love and grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.